Welcome to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church in Harvest, Alabama. We invite you into our sanctuary as we dive into God's Word with our pastor, Dr. Al Perringer. Well, good morning. Good to see all of you here and all those able to join us online. We want to look in Acts chapter 2 today, the Acts of the Apostles chapter 2. I'll read verses 42 through 47 here in just a little bit. You know, I, I read a story the other day about two researchers who decided that they wanted to replicate the parable of the Good Samaritan amongst seminary students. And so what they did was they, they introduced a few variables to these seminary students. These seminarians, they were interviewed and asked why they wanted to go into ministry. And, you know, a lot of different responses were given, but the vast majority said they went into ministry to help people. Okay, well, good. Well, then they all were asked, we want you to prepare a very short sermon. Um, half of them were told, do your sermon on the Good Samaritan. The other half were given different topics. And finally, they said, okay, one, once you're done with your sermon, we're going to send you to this other camp, uh, this other building on the campus, and that's where you're going to your sermon. And so, that was kind of the variables, but what they introduced was somewhere between the one building and the other building, they positioned an actor in the alley who would play the part of a man who was mugged, kind of sort of just like in Jesus' parable. And so he was slumped over, he was groaning loud enough for passerbys to hear. You couldn't, you couldn't ignore him. And so the researchers had this hypothesis. They thought that, okay, those who said that they went into ministry to help people, and those who were given the topic of the Good Samaritan to preach on, they were more likely to go help this person. They were more likely to be a Good Samaritan. They were more likely to stop and help the man who had been mugged. But that wasn't the case because they introduced another variable. The final variable that they introduced was something that they told each of the seminarians. Just before they left to give their sermons, they were told one of two things. One, for one group of people, they would look at their watch and they said, you're late. They, they were expecting you several minutes ago. You better hurry. And then to other seminarians they looked at their watch and they said ah you're early they're not expecting you for a few minutes but you can go ahead and get headed over there you got some time here's what the research found 10 percent of the seminary students who were told that they were late who were in a hurry stopped to help that means 90 percent didn't by the way if i do my math right while 63% of those who weren't in a hurry stopped to help. Of course, that means 37 didn't, but... In several cases, seminary, the seminary students who were told that they were late, that they were, you know, they were in a hurry, even if, they were, even if they were given the topic of the Good Samaritan, they literally stepped over the victim to get to their class because they were in a hurry and they were late. The researchers concluded that it didn't matter whether someone wanted to help people or whether someone had just read and prepared a sermon on the parable of the Good Samaritan or, you know, something similar. The only thing that mattered about people showing compassion on other people was whether or not they were in a hurry. They concluded the words, 
quote-unquote, you're late, had the effect of making someone who was ordinarily compassionate into someone who was indifferent to suffering. Now, as easy as it is to judge these students because of that research and that story, let's be honest, that story is a reflection for all of us, me included. Me personally, and I confess and I publicly repent that I allow my busyness to be used as an excuse not to show compassion on people. And I apologize for that from the bottom of my heart. I'm very task-oriented at times. And of course, I think all of us as Americans can be as well. But we can't let our tasks and we can't let our busyness excuse us from showing the compassion that Jesus himself showed. Be they on people who were blind, be they on people who were demon-possessed, be it someone who was a leper. Christ showed compassion. We are called to the same thing. But where compassion starts for us, it begins in the church. It begins in the church by showing compassion toward one another, but I also am coming from the angle that the church should be a training ground for us to then go out and show compassion outside the church. We prepare by showing compassion inside the church, so we're ready to show compassion outside the church. When you learn compassion within the church, it will overflow to outside of the church. So here we are in the book of Acts. Chapter 2, we're seeing the birth of the church. And there's a lot of things that can be said about the church that was birthed. But what I want to kind of hone in on today is the compassion that they had. It was a church that was characterized by compassion. They had compassion within, and then it overflowed to having compassion without. And I just want to consider a couple of the characteristics of that early church that prepared them to be a people of compassion. So we also can be a people of Christ-like compassion. And I want to read verses 42 through 47, what it says about this early church in Acts chapter 2, if you'll stand in reverence to the reading of God's holy word as I read these verses. And they, the new birth church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, take your word and implant it within us so that we too would be a people of compassion, just like our Savior intended. It's in his holy name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So what characteristics marked the early church that prepared them to be compassionate? that trained them to be compassionate? What was it about the early church that made, that made them ready to be compassionate within and then without? Well, first I want to talk about that a compassionate church, a compassionate community, 
is marked by togetherness. It's hard to be compassionate alone. Verse 44 tells us that they were together, and the wording that is here in the passage, it indicates that there was a closeness of a relationship and there was a unity of mind that the believers had with one another. I think this is a very important part of compassion because you cannot love someone, you cannot serve someone, and show compassion on someone if you are not near someone. You cannot be compassionate when cloistered in your own little hovel, in your own little fortress. That's what made COVID so hard. We were separated from one another. We had no outlet for compassion except our own family. And let's face it, when you were stuck in your house with your family for months on end, your compassion wore thin. Not me and my family. We got along great. We'd we'd play a lot of games and stuff. But could easily have happened to others. And the early church, though, knew that the important part of compassion, or a important characteristic of compassion, was being a model of togetherness. They were together. As one author stated, they were loving one to, one to another and very kind. Their charity was as eminent as their piety and their joining together in holy ordinances, knit their hearts to each other, and very much endeared them to one another. Compassion has to begin in the church before it can go out. There's a special bond between church members. We are united under the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In Ephesians 4, Paul called it the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. And so our commonality in Christ overcomes the differences that we have within the church. And we are united in a close-knittedness. If that's not a word, I just made it up. But you're close-knit. You're close-knit in Christ. And that's why it's called a community. But where in the community is this togetherness demonstrated? Where did they demonstrate this togetherness? Well, one, they demonstrated it in ministry. They did ministry together. We see in these verses that the church as a unit took upon themselves to take care of the needs of others within the body, which then would bleed to the world. They were united in ministry and service and sacrifice, imitating what the Lord himself did. Because when there was someone hungry, Jesus fed them. When there was someone sick, Jesus healed them. Jesus modeled compassion through ministry. And he then gives that to us. We, as a people together, we minister to those that we have contact with. Not only were they united and together in ministry, they were united and together in worship. It says in verse 46 that they continued daily with one accord in the temple. And then in verse 47, it says that they praised God together. And so, you know, you think about this. The first believers, they were Jews, and they didn't see their faith in Christ as replacing their religious heritage. Rather, it was the fulfillment of their religious heritage. He, Jesus fulfilled the law in the temple, but they met in the temple because that's where they just were used to meeting. And so they... They went to the bedrock of the heritage, of, and they joined together, and they sang songs, and they read the Scripture. You know, it talked about them, that, them being committed to the reading of Scripture and to singing songs. The church of all ages, at all times, in all places, shares a religious heritage in Christ. Paul reminds us in Ephesians 4, there is one body, there is one spirit, there is one hope 
There is one Lord, there is one faith, there is one baptism, there is one God and Father of all who is over all. And through all, we are united in one, and we, that is why we're told not to forsake the assembling together of ourselves, so that we can come together in our united heritage under a united Lord to praise our united triune God. We worship as community. We worship together and as a community worshiping. It reminds us of who saved us, who it is that we serve, and the mission that we are called to. But not only was there this, connect, this togetherness in worship, there was togetherness in fellowship. It says in verse 46 that they went from one person's house to the next person's house, eating their food with gladness and humble contentment. They went from house to house eating food. If that ain't Baptist, I don't know what is. It started there. Y'all, it's in Scripture. You can't argue with Scripture. So don't forget the food tonight if you come to game night. <laughs> what it's in telling us is that they, it, they enjoyed the company of believers so that they could give mutual encouragement around a mutual meal. I mean, it actually probably talks about the love feast that they had early on. They, they weren't only sharing a meal, they were sharing their lives. Through conversation, they shared over a meal their problems and discussed and worked them out. And, and this is where love and compassion were sown as bread was broken between people. Now, it does need to be said, and this might come as a shock to us Baptists, but fellowship is more than just food. It's more than just a meal. It is a united community for mutual benefit. For there to be a community of compassion, there has to be a togetherness in ministry, a togetherness in worship, and a togetherness in fellowship. Some of the early church fathers had to learn this the hard way. I read a story about a, one of the early church fathers named Pachamias, you know, they didn't have easy names back then. And so Pachamias, he was an Egyptian shoulder, soldier who was one uh, to Christ. And, and, and after he was released from the military in about A.D. 315, he was baptized. And, you know, he was very serious about the faith in Christ. He wanted to grow in Christ. And so he became a disciple of a man named Palamon. But Palamon taught him that, well, if you want to really live for Christ, it has to be all about self-denial, the solitary life of a religious hermit, you know, live in a cave, be alone, get pious, and, and, and things like that. I mean, that was kind of the popular thing back then. I mean, holiness meant solitude, silence, and, and severity. So that's what Pachamias learned early on. But then he began to question the methods. He began to question his mentors. Because he, he asked these important questions. How can you learn to love someone if you're never around someone? How can you learn to love when no one else is around? How can you learn humility when you live alone? How can you learn kindness or gentleness in isolation? How can you learn patience unless you're around people who put your patience to the test? How can there be compassion? How can you show compassion when you have no one around to show you compassion? And so he concluded that, you know, to continue developing spiritual fruit, that, you know, if I'm going to be a compassionate person, requires, I mean, I have to be together with people. He, people, he, he even noted, and he kind of wrote this out, he noted that God's kind of love is best learned when we can't be selective about our associates. You know, when you can't pick and choose who you hang out with. You know, and he, you know, he talks about, you know, two institutions that God, uh, you know, kind of established, the family and the church, 
I mean, those aren't joined by invitation only. I mean, you, you have no choice of who your parents and brothers and sisters and whatnot are, and yet you're expected to love them. And, you know, the church is whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. You, don't, you know, this isn't a country club. We don't, just, we don't pick and choose people. Yeah, you're in, you're out. Look, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you're, you're part of the church. And if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you can believe in Jesus Christ and become part of the church. Any who confess Jesus is Lord is welcomed. And you can learn compassion most effectively in these involuntary associations, away from the temptation of, well, I'm going to pick and choose who I love. And so, Pachamias established a common life based on worship, work, and discipline in community. In community with flawed, demanding, sometimes disagreeable people, which describes all of us. I'm flawed, I'm demanding, I'm disagreeable. I'm not, no, don't point fingers, by the way, no. But you know what? It's through those disagreements and it's through that opposition and that the opportunity for compassion can be shown. It's, it's where this redeemed life situation and experience of God's grace where compassion can be learned together. There has to be a togetherness if, if we're going to be compassionate. And so, you know, for Pachamias, He's, that's not a church father you ever really hear of. But you know what? As, as nice as it might sound as, you know, solitary sanctification, that sounds like a good thing. Let me just get holy all by myself and, and stuff. But it, 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 you, you can't. You can't learn to be Christ-like away from people. You cannot learn to be compassionate like Christ away from people. It is in life amid the people amid the busyness, amid the interruptions, the life of togetherness where we learn compassion. But not only is a community of compassion bred in togetherness, we also find out that a compassionate church is marked through sharing. It's marked by sharing. You know, compassion shows itself in the togetherness of a group, but then it expresses itself through sharing. But how did the early church share together? What was, what was it that they shared together? Remember, it's together. And so they shared together. What did they share together? Well, one, they shared their possessions together. In verse 45, it says, they were selling their possessions and, belonging, and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as, as anyone had need. Now, unlike what some of the socialists will try and say about the early church, this was not a commune. This was not some sort of socialist heaven or something like that. Because consider, people did not get rid of their homes. I mean, it says they went from house to house. You can't go house to house unless you have a house to go one to the other, right? But what the text describes is that when there were people within the church who had a need, when a need was made known within the body of believers, they gave what they could to fulfill that need. But if they didn't have something to fulfill the need, they sacrificed their stuff by selling it and giving the proceeds to the one who had the need. It was a sacrificial act based on sacrificial love. How many of us would sell one of our toys, one of our gadgets, one of our gizmos so that someone could pay the rent, so that someone could have food on the table, so that someone could hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? How many of us would sell our stuff so the gospel of Jesus Christ could go throughout the world? 
Not, you know, don't have to get rid of all your stuff. But how many of us would sell any of our unnecessary stuff, even, to help someone in need? I read a story about, uh, there was this couple with their daughter in the back seat. They were driving down a road in Atlanta, Georgia. They came to a, a stoplight. And the daughter named Hannah, she saw on one side of the street this very expensive black Mercedes, and right across the street from black, this black Mercedes was this homeless man begging for food. And so Hannah turned to her, her father, Kevin, and, and, and said to him, you know, Dad, if that man who has the nice car had a less nice car, he'd have money to help the man who needed a meal. And even as they pulled away, Hannah insisted that she wanted to do something about what she saw. And, and so her mother, Joan, asked her, well, what do, what do you think we should do? And Hannah said, sell our house. But you know what? That's eventually what they did, not to live homeless or anything. They sold their luxurious house. They donated half the proceeds to charity, helping the homeless and he helping those who didn't have food. And they bought a smaller, more modest home instead. And yes, the sacrifice was great, but from their point of view, the benefits were greater still. A smaller house meant a more family-friendly house. And this is what Kevin says, the, the dad. He said, we essentially traded stuff for, for togetherness and connectedness. I can't figure out why everybody wouldn't want that deal. And so this whole project that they did, it's chronicled in the book, a book that they wrote uh, called The Power of Half. And the, the aim of the book isn't to get people to sell their homes, but instead to encourage people to get out of this, what they call the treadmill of accumulation. We just need to accumulate more stuff. Instead of defining yourself by the stuff that you have, how about defining yourself by what it is that you give? Hannah says in the book, for us, the house was just something we could live without. It was too big for us. Everyone has too much of something, whether it's time, talent, or treasure. Everyone does have their own half. You just have to find it. And so what a challenging story. That sounds very anti-American. We want to accumulate more stuff. We need more stuff. Is it worth accumulating more stuff when your brother and sister is going without. And so they shared their possessions. Not only did they share their possessions, they next shared their devotion. In verse 46, the ESV translates the first part of that verse as they attended, attending the temple. Um, most other translations say something to the effect of continuing in the temple or something like that. But what it literally says there is that they were devoted. They were devoted in such a way as they put intense effort into, for them, it was serving God, following God, worshiping God. Because you think about this, these were people who saw Jesus, they heard Jesus, and so they had a common devotion toward what they received from Jesus. And they put that devotion to action. We are devoted to Christ. And we will put that to action, is what they demonstrated. Where's our devotion? You know, too often, churches, they come together for a service. After the service, we endured another service. They go on their merry way. They don't share anything together. They, they, uh, they don't share their common faith. They don't spur one, an, one another on to some greater, greater good or great, greater commitment to Christ or a greater ministry. 
a greater faith. They don't deepen each other's devotion to Jesus Christ and His Word when such a devotion would lead to a greater compassion. Do we share that devotion together? We say as individuals we're devoted to Christ, but do we actually talk about that? And do we spur one another on to devotion? Do we ask the hard questions? How'd you show your devotion to Christ this past week? Man, what would we say if someone asked us that question? Instead of, how'd your team do? Yeah, I'll be getting some emails about that one, huh? Are we more devoted to our football team than we are to the cause of Christ? We got to share that devotion and spur one another on to greater devotion in the togetherness of the church. Not only did they share devotion, they also shared a common purpose. They shared their purpose. They all had one purpose. In, in, in verse 46, the ESV translation, um, it's either missing a word or they combine the word or, or something. So here, here's the Al translation of what, what it says there in the Greek. Each day they were being devoted with one mind or with one accord in the temple. So, you know, they had one mind. They had one purpose is what the word means. They were unanimous in what the church ought to be about, worshiping a risen Savior and being Jesus to the people of the world. They knew that their purpose was not to build greater and bigger buildings. It was not to start a new program. It was not to sit in nice comfy seats in a nice comfy building to be doted upon. For the early church, the church was not about them. The church was not about what could the church do for me and then get all offended and sit and have a pity party when the church didn't do what you think the church should have done for you. No, their purpose was to worship and serve a great God and a great Savior and to live a life of community that showed compassion that spread out into the world, a world that is lost, dying, and desperately needs the light of Christ. That was their purpose. That's the purpose that they shared. They did it with one mind. They did it with one accord. They shared a devotion to Christ so that they could live out the purpose of Christ. Where is our devotion and what is our purpose? What do you think the purpose of Harvest Baptist Church is? Come on a Sunday morning and sit down and walk, you know, listen to the great music and endure through a sermon and hope you get to lunch in time? Or is it to serve a mighty God and worship a mighty God and be devoted to a mighty God and to spur one another on to great good works of His? And not only were, were, they, were they sharing their purpose, they shared their witness. Together, they went out and shared their witness. I mean, if you read the rest of the book of Acts, they, they didn't just stick around in the temple. Yeah, they went to the temple and they worshiped, but they didn't just stick around in the temple and had their little holy huddle there. They went out and they witnessed and they testified about who Jesus is and what he did so others could believe in him in salvation as well. They testified about Jesus' death as a substitute for sinners. They testified about his resurrection for eternal life. I mean, the Jews, they needed to hear that their Messiah had come. 
they, they, that, that God so loved them that, they sent, that he sent his only son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Yes, you know, we think about compassion. We think about doing good things, and there, there is that. There are needs. But there's no greater need than the need of forgiveness of sins. Yes, we need to help be the hands and feet of Jesus and be it feed people or house people or, or, or those acts that we think of when we think of compassion. But what good is it to send someone to hell on a full stomach and we don't share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ? There is nothing more compassionate than sharing Jesus with someone who is headed into an eternity without him. And so here they were, a people of togetherness, marked by compassion for one another, sharing with one another. And what happened? What was the results when they were people of togetherness and sharing? Just rather quickly, listen to this. First, it says in verse 47 that they had a good reputation. They had a good reputation. In, in verse 47, it says that they had favor with all the people. The people who were outside of the community thought well of the people who were inside of the community. Why? I mean, why did they have such a good reputation? Was it because they preached out of the right version of the Bible? Could it have been the music? Was it, was it because they had a great marketing campaign and they, they were really good at social media? Was that why they had favor in the eyes of the people? Or could it have been because a lost world saw the people of Christ showing compassion and taking care of one another and then it's spreading out into the world? The people of their community said, hey, look, look at the way that those people are loving on one another. You know, there might be something to this Christianity thing after all. And if there's something to this Christianity thing, maybe there's something to what they're saying about this Christ person. And so they had favor in the eyes of the people, but that wasn't the only result from being this community of compassion. Our text also says that a result was church growth, and church growth in the right way, it, 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 the healthy way. It says in verse 47, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. People saw their compassion, their hearts were open to the message of Christ dying and rising again, and they believed and they became a part of the community of compassion. They became part of the church. That's healthy church growth. Now, you know, I have a huge personal library because I have an addiction, frankly. I, I see a book, I'm like, ooh, I gotta own that. Do I read it? Well, that's besides the point. You don't need to read a book, you just wanna own the book. And, and a lot of the books that I own are about church growth. And there's been so many fads over the years they have all come and gone. Does God work in fads? I don't think so. The early church demonstrated church growth in the biblical way. Be a community of compassion. Be Jesus to the people. There's the community. Therein lies the church. And therein lies church growth. The church needs to grow. Fine, let's be a community of compassion. Together, serving one another and sharing with one another. 
and spreading out into the community. And so as we come to our time of invitation, maybe you need some compassion from God, you're dealing with something, come to the altar and cry out to Him. Maybe there are some here today, you're looking to become a part of a, 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 part of a community of compassion. Join yourself with Harvest Baptist Church. After our invitation, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper where it is a memorial of the compassion that God showed toward us through Jesus Christ. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, we, we deserve condemnation and instead we got compassion from God. But to participate in the Lord's Supper and to understand what the memorial is all about, you need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be a part of His people. You need to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so maybe you need to do that today. So during our invitation, give your life to Christ. I'll be up front here. I will introduce you to my Savior. And then you can also enjoy just the, the wonderful thing that we do together that proclaims the death and burial and resurrection of our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gives us life. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at harvest-baptist.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can also find info on our children's ministry on Facebook at Harvest Baptist Children's Ministry or on Instagram at KidsQuest underscore HBC. Our student ministries on Facebook at HBC Vertical Student Ministry and on Instagram at VSM underscore HBC. We welcome you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are located at 8999 Waltrana Highway in Harvest, Alabama. Thanks for listening and God bless.